0: Well, hey, Collective, Pastor Ryan here, a teaching pastor, if if we haven't had the chance to meet. And and yeah, that video that you just heard uh, from Chris and Tyler at Over the Rhine uh, City Church is uh, one of these relationships that we're so excited to get rolling, uh, particularly out of the motivation that we have that uh, what it means to be, not just a, a, what it means to be a Christian is that we are a part of a, a local church. And what it means to be a part of that local church is that in some way we are connected to this larger movement of those following the way of Jesus. And we wanna be a resource uh, with the resources that God's given to us to uh, bless and empower uh, the work of other churches. And so we're really excited, not only for this this partnership and relationship, uh, but for the reality of another church, uh, studying the scriptures and seeking to follow the way of Jesus more closely. Well, today we are at the kickoff of Palm Sunday and with it, uh, Holy Week, uh, where we enter into uh, this kind of, a historical process with the church uh, over the past 2000 years, uh, looking back uh, at the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the events in Jerusalem leading up to it. And so here at Palm Sunday, we are, uh, many churches around the world are, are observing and remembering actually what we looked at back in January, Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, this kind of Uh, uh, you know, pretending and, and, and subversion and inverting of all of the expectations of political power in his day. And as Jesus does this, the crowds are hailing and welcoming him in with these palm branches. And so here on Palm Sunday for thousands of years, the church has worshiped with palm branches, raising them, singing Hosanna, save us we pray. It's a Sunday about identifying Jesus for who he is. And so, like I said, we looked at that story back in January and what we've been in over this spring has been Holy Week. We have been in Jesus's final week in Jerusalem over this past year. All of it being the kickoff to and follow through of his time in Jerusalem all leading up to Good Friday, his death. And so we've been in the temple, we've been following Jesus as he's been uh, calling out the religious leaders, as he's been uh, uh, observing Passover with his disciples, as he was in the garden last week, praying, knowing what was coming and then his betrayal by Judas and arrest. So it makes sense that today, as we arrive uh, at the end of Mark 14, that this would fall on Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday, like I said, a moment ago is a day in which the church has looked back and observed and, and for themselves, identified Jesus for who he was. That's what the crowds were doing on Palm Sunday. And today here at the end of Mark 14 in Jesus' trial, we finally get Jesus unveiling him, identifying himself for who he is. And so whereas the crowds were identifying Jesus on Palm Sunday here, In Mark 14, we find Jesus identifying himself after this whole gospel of him being secretive about it. Today, he lifts the veil. He lays down the cards. He shows himself for who he is. But Mark also invites us and and brings us into the story of Peter today. And he's gonna see not just the declaration of Jesus's identity, but a denial of Jesus's identity in the person of Peter. And in all of that, he's inviting us to see ourselves there. But before we talk more about that, let's read the passage that's before us today. In Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. And so we'll read through this story. Uh, We'll pray over our time together and then we'll begin studying and seeing what's here for us. Mark 14, beginning in verse 53 says, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter was there sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. So the high priest stood up in their midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And so again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King, the son of the blessed son of God. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him and say, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter there warming himself by the fire, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what it is that you're saying. And so he went out even further to the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again. And she began to say, along with some of the bystanders there with her, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were there with Peter. They said to Peter, certainly you are one of them. You are a Galilean. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and began to swear saying, I do not know this man whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father, we come here to the end of chapter 14. Uh, We are uh, on the edge, looking down the slope into God, the place of Jesus's death in the week ahead and the hope of his resurrection. And yet here Mark sets before us two final words on Jesus's identity in a mirror once again to see ourselves in Peter's denial. And so today we pray that you would help us to, to hear Jesus for his true witness of his identity and what that means about this world. And that we would also see in Peter, God, a, a soft heart to see ourselves in him. God, that we might have our ears prepared to hear the good news of Easter and resurrection even more. Be with us. Amen. Well, as we look back to the beginning of chapter 14, in verses 53 and 54, we have, uh, for some of you film nerds out here, which is basically, I think, everybody that lives in L.A., we have this establishing shot that Peter sets up for us. Because though he goes on to talk about Jesus and the whole trial, and then later Peter, back in 53 and 54, this is the establishing shot of everything that's going to happen where, you know, if you just kind of, you know, use your imagination here is that coming out of the garden of Gethsemane where he's been arrested, he is brought to the high priest's home, this giant estate that he would live on. And the camera comes with him and follows him through the hallway into this grand open area where the high priest is there sat with the chief priest. And then all of the scribes and the elders all here late coming in the middle of the night, early, early morning. And Jesus is brought there and he stands there before them. But before we start to get into the conversation, the camera pans back out and it moves back through those, those hallways and past servants, to go through the kitchen or whatever. And then it comes outside of the courtyard. And then there by this fire pit is there standing, Peter. And then the camera, you know, the the, the frame splits and you have this picture of Jesus and Peter standing side by side. And Mark is setting up for us that what we're about to undergo is this comparison and contrast of Peter and Jesus And we are going to see the trial of both Jesus and Peter. This is this continuation of how Mark's been setting this up over the past few chapters. He's regularly been setting different examples of of rejection and denial and abandonment and those who have left or ran from Jesus or betrayed him, that Mark is trying to set a mirror before us and he's going to do it again. And so today in verses 53 through 65, Mark sets up Jesus's trial before us. In many ways, he is setting up the coming chapters of what's going to happen in chapter 15 with his death, 16 with his resurrection, that all of this right here is about what Jesus just said. The son of man coming with the clouds, sitting at the right hand of power. He's setting up everything that's gonna happen in the chapters to come. But notice that before Mark leads us into that, he's got one final mirror. One more time for us to look at one of the disciples of Jesus, here, his closest one, Peter, to see ourselves because it's almost like we can't read about his death and resurrection until we really see ourselves in Peter. But let's go back to the top. Let's look at Jesus's trial here. Back in verse 53, and then as it begins to move forward in 55, as the camera comes back to Jesus's trial, for those that uh, are, are acclimated to the ancient Jewish legal rights, you see that this is a complete miscarriage of justice and what's happening to Jesus here. Uh, b- based off what we understand from archaeology and, and historical studies and, and even just the, the law, the Old Testament and the way that this sort of, trial should have gone about. It should not have been late in the middle of the night. It should have been in the middle of the day. Uh, it should not have been at the high priest's home, hidden away. It should have been in, in the public arena at the temple. It should not have happened uh, in the middle of the night. It should not have happened in the temple. It should not have happened over one night right? Uh, it should have been actually over at least two nights where all of the jury has the chance to sleep on it, consider the charges before they come forward and make the decree. So everything's happening here in this miscarriage of justice. On top of that, where in verse 55, we see that they've already got a verdict before the trials even started. Did you see this? In verse 55, that the chief priest, the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They are not looking to figure out what do we do with Jesus? Is he a troublemaker? Is he legit? They want him dead, which is why they arrange for false witnesses. It says liars. People are gonna bring false testimony, which again is is the the sad irony of these are the teachers of the law who are breaking the law. This is 10 commandment stuff. Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. And they're conniving and bringing up as many as they can to put Jesus to death. This whole thing is a miscarriage of justice. And so in verse 56 and 59, we find the first charge they bring against Jesus through these false witnesses and twisting of his words. Specifically, they're utilizing his his teachings, his prediction, and his condemnation on the current temple and its religious leaders that if you've been with us through this year, what has been Jesus' common thing that began with Palm Sunday? He rides into the temple. He's turning over tables. The whole system has got to go. And so they take this and his teachings about the temple and they turn it over into him actually saying he's going to do something about the temple. The first charge they bring against Jesus and his call of destruction and tearing down the temple is that of domestic terrorism. They're trying to name Jesus as a domestic terrorist who has come to destroy the temple. They're utilizing and, and misunderstanding his words, or maybe they do maybe understand, but they're, they're taking them out of their context of what Jesus is, is in larger context saying. And so the first charge is they're going after Jesus's domestic terrorist, that he's here to destroy the temple. He doesn't answer to their charges and they can't get a witness to actually line up. Everybody comes forward trying to claim something about him, but they can't get witnesses that agree. And so the case seems to be falling apart. And so the high priest then comes to Jesus with the second charge in verses 60 and 61, where he asks him, okay, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed King of Israel's story all coming to a head? Are you the son of the blessed, the son of God? which for us, we tend to hear son of God and we bring in our, our later understandings of son of God being connected to God, the son and who Jesus is in that identity to call the son of God was throughout the Psalms as a way of talking about a king, about a Messiah, about the anointed figure. So he asks, are you the anointed king? And in here, again, he's asking, we know He's not legitimately wondering, is this guy, the Messiah, the King? What he's trying to do is find a way to put him to death as we just read back in verse 55. And so what he's trying to find here is he's moved from the domestic terrorism charge against the temple to now one of sedition and, and overthrowing the Roman government, specifically Caesar. And so he says, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? If he can get him to say that he's the King, then we can, we can hand him over to Rome and Rome will take care of him for us. And so in verse 62, here we have Jesus declares his identity. Now, like I said, this is a pivotal moment in all of the gospel because throughout the gospel, Jesus has never once explicitly come forward and said his identity. We've had demons saying it. We've had disciples saying it. We've had the uh, the God himself, at the transfiguration. But Jesus has always used this kind of language veiled in son of man, right? That he's talked about. He's never explicitly said who he is and how this all comes together. And here in verse 62, Jesus removes the veil. He takes off the mask. He unveils himself. He self-identifies himself. And what we read, Here in verse 62 is Jesus saying, I am, is him confirming. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the blessed, the son of God. I am this awaited and anointed king that all of the story has been going on. I am king. And at some level, Caesar is not. But then what he does is he levels it up. He takes it another step further where he combines Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, these two prophetic uh, poems about this coming figure that would be more than Messiah. And it's this uh, title of son of man, his favorite way of identifying his nickname for himself all throughout Mark's gospel. So the Messiah somehow now is the son of man, the the king, that whole story, the awaited anointed king also overlaps with the prophetic vision of this son of man who in Psalm 110 is seated at the right hand of power and Daniel seven is coming with the clouds. Both of these are poetic ways within the Jewish story of talking about divinity. Sitting at the right hand of power is sitting, sharing in the reign and rule with God. Coming with the clouds is this language of, of not simply, you know, flight, but but heavens, the clouds, the, the belonging to the creator God and then his self-identity. So Jesus is here saying, I'm more, the, here he is the veil. I mean, you could just do, we could do a whole sermon here. And so I'm trying to, to, to not, But it's so, Jesus here is taking all of the messianic expectation of the Old Testament and now he's merging it with the Son of Man prophecies of Daniel 7. One like the Son of Man who would sit at the right hand of power. and Psalm 110 of David's Son and David's Lord, we looked at this back in Mark uh, uh, 12. And he's bringing all of these things together here in this new profound way that's breaking categories, but also unifying them. Jesus is identifying himself, not just as the human King that has been anointed, but also as God himself come to rule his people. Even more than that, many point to the fact that Jesus, when he says, you know, are you the Christ? He says, I am. This phrase that in the Greek points back to the revealed name of God within the Hebrew, within the the Greek scriptures. Ego, Emi, Emi, connects to Yahweh. The the whole story is in some way, this I am, you know, is God's name. And so in some way he's saying, yes, I am, And many will point to, and also at the same time, in the midst of his claims to divinity, he's also utilizing the divine name in some way as a part of all this. And so in the midst of all that's happening here, Jesus is identifying himself as God, as a first century Jew would understand. And that's why it's not lost on the high priest and company. 63 and 65, he rips his clothes and he charges out with the third and final charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy, the audacity to ascribe God's honor to oneself, to equate oneself with God. All of this goes back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter two where Jesus is going around forgiving people's sins and the scribes are there calling out blasphemy on him. The audacity to think you have the the ability and power to do what only God can do, which is forgiving sins. And so from Mark 2, all the way to Mark 14, Jesus has been showing himself as doing and now claiming what only God can do and claim. And this is what they crucify him for. The final charge of blasphemy here is powerful, even if in some way indirect proof of Jesus's claim, not just to be human Messiah, but God in the flesh, God and human. That Jesus was condemned and then, and moving into chapter 14, crucified for his declaration of not just being king, but but God king. And this is what stands before us and something that we have to wrestle with in particular for our friends who love to identify and see Jesus as a good teacher or for those like Bart Ehrman who would say that Jesus uh, never identified himself as God. This is what the high priests handed him over to death for. They tried to get him on the domestic terrorism. They tried to get him on the sedition claim, but it is the blast. It's blasphemy. It's the audacity to claim himself as sharing within the divine identity. This is what he was crucified for. We have, we need to face this and deal with this. And what's so profound is that Jesus, in claiming himself to be the divine King, God become human to rule and reign over his people and to inaugurate the kingdom of God, that as he makes his claim, that that is the thing that he's going to be crucified for. And in the paradox, the turning around is that is how he's going to inaugurate his kingdom. Notice back in verse 62, where when Jesus is identifying himself as the Christ, as the son of man, the one seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven, is that he says, I am, and you will see the son of man coming with the clouds, sitting at the right hand. You will see, or as Matthew's gospel uh, places it is, from now on, you will see. So regardless if we pull from Mark or Matthew's version, Jesus says, you will see the son of man at the right hand of power, the son of man in all of his glory as the Messiah and King that God has sent. You will see, and he says that not after his death and resurrection, not after his cross, but before it. This is part of the story of what we're going to be looking at on Friday at 630 for a Good Friday service, is that the cross is the enthronement of Jesus. That the cross is how Jesus, how God becomes king in a new and profound way. It is how the kingdom is inaugurated. It's the paradox of the stories. The cross is when you will see the son of God. But as Jesus makes this claim, the mob begin to, in some sense, enthrone him as they beat him, spit upon him and mock him, charging him with blasphemy in some way here, they commit it themselves as they attack God in flesh himself. And so here you have the priesthood of the temple. Those who should have been the first to welcome are the first to attack the king. And this story continues on Friday, but Mark's camera now. Like we've been setting up with the establishing shot. Mark's camera doesn't continue like we would think with this story. We're in Mark 15, it picks up and Jesus moves straight from the priest moving over to go and see Pilate. But the story doesn't, right in the middle here, Mark has one last thing, little detour for us to see before we can move on to the cross. One last thing for us to spend some time on and that is Peter. And what we find within Peter is that like Jesus, he undergoes himself these three different charges. And all of these ones are not about who are you? Are you domestic terrorist, seditionist? Are you... Are you a blasphemous? But are you a disciple of Jesus? And on all three counts, he denies. Once again, Mark setting them alongside each other in the frame is comparing and contrasting their story. Whereas Jesus is inside the high priest's house is Peter is on the outside. Whereas Jesus undergoes some sense of a, a formal trial, Peter's is informal. It's a conversation over a fire pit. Whereas the high priests have brought up all of these false claims against Jesus Peter's claims against him are all true claims that he's a disciple. And whereas Jesus stands before the high priests and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, those with the most power within the day, and that is who Jesus stands before and is faithful, Peter stands before a servant girl and a couple of bystanders and it's underneath them that he is faithless. Peter three times denies knowing Jesus. It's profound that in this, he won't even say his Name. He says, this man, a way of distancing himself from Jesus. Peter here, through his three denials, stands alongside Judas earlier in the story, the priesthood just a moment ago, in a rejection and denial of who Jesus is. That Peter, though not betraying like Judas or arresting, that in his own denial, they they there is this, this triangle, this, this three-part story of rejection and denial of Jesus. And today, Mark sets Peter before us. And what we can't miss is seeing that, that in denying Jesus, that simultaneously the conversation is not just about who is Jesus, but it's about who is Peter as his disciple. And in denying Jesus, Peter is also denying his own identity, his own story as the disciple of Jesus. If you've been with us through the gospel of Mark, what have we seen with Peter? He was the first disciple that Jesus called. One of Jesus's first healings was Peter's uh, mother-in-law. Peter has been witness to each and every one of the miracles. He has been with Jesus through the past three years in all of this teaching. He was commissioned as an apostle by Jesus. He is the only disciple that walked out on the water with Jesus. He sunk for a bit, but he had that alone. He was the first disciple to identify Jesus as the Messiah, he was there at the transfiguration, hearing the voice of God say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter is the one, I mean, in denying Jesus, he's denying the the miracles that is his own story. And for all the false witnesses inside, here outside by the fire pit stands, arguably the best true faithful witness to the whole story of Jesus's identity and who he is. And he's denying the whole thing. In, den- in renouncing and denying Jesus, he's not just denying his, his, his rabbi or his teacher. He's denying the claims that Jesus has made about himself. He's denying his king. He's denying his, his Lord. He's denying his God. He is denying his own story and his part within the story of God. His own identity here. And so the paradox here that that's, I've just been chewing on this all week is back in Mark 8, Jesus said that in order to follow me, you must deny yourself. And here on the reversal, a few chapters later is that for Peter to deny Jesus is to deny himself, but not in the right direction. That in some sense, there is a denial of ourselves that leads to life. And there is a way of us denying Jesus that actually leads to death. Because Jesus, Jesus, if he is who he claims to be in those verses a moment ago, then he's worth everything. And he is worth faithfully standing near in the midst of whatever crowd we may find ourselves in. But Peter denies not just who Jesus is, but who he is as a part of Jesus' story. And as we reach the end, by the time that the rooster crows twice and he's breaking down and weeping by all counts, this appears. If we're reading the story, we don't know where it's going. We've never read Mark's gospel or any of the other gospels before. This seems to be the end of Peter's story. Like Judas's, this is it. So the question that we have to ask is what caused Peter to do this? This, The same individual who hours earlier at the Passover dinner was promising Jesus. I will not, though everybody else does, I will not follow away, Jesus. Even if I must die, he says, I will not deny. I will not betray you. Just hours ago, he was swinging swords at high priest's aides. And now here he is. He can't stand faithfully by his witness to to this, this little servant girl. What causes this to happen within Peter? Like with Judas a few weeks ago, Mark is silent on the why. This could be his confusion as just what in the world is happening. It could be fear. You know, these guys saw me cut off one of the aide's ears, or he's looking into the courtyard, from the courtyard into the house, and he's seeing Jesus undergoing this trial and now being beaten, and he's afraid for his life. It could be his exhaustion, his spiritual emptiness at some level that, Many would point out too that we had Peter failing to pray three times last week and now we have him denying Jesus three times. But like with Judas, Mark leaves it up for us to consider because here he is giving us one more mirror to see ourselves and to ask, why would, why do I deny Jesus? Because in this passage, it is not just Jesus and Peter on trial, but you and I, that Mark is telling this this story, this example of of placing Peter's denial right here and not before it and having the narrative. He purposely breaks up Jesus's whole process of him moving towards his cross and puts Peter right before we keep moving. Right after we hear who Jesus is, we get one final time for someone, one of his disciples, to identify and hold with him to the last. To even to death, like Peter says, I will stand with you. That he would have in some way ran into the room hearing this. They're looking for a, a witness, and he would have run in and said, you know, that that I this is who he is. I know this is who he is. That this is I've seen the witness that you guys are and even if it would have been him crucified. I mean, I you just think it's left open to the imagination. But what would have happened if Peter would have run in and been crucified with Jesus? Would he have joined him in the resurrection? Like what, what would Easter Sunday have looked like? Well, we, it's left, left conjecture because this does not happen. You see, Mark has set Peter, as with Judas in the past few weeks, as with all of the disciples throughout this gospel, for us to look at and see in some way a mirror, for us to reflect on our own stories, our own in some way, our denial of him. To see back at the Passover dinner and Peter's promises to faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus, our own declarations of of faithfulness and following Jesus, that that could have been in our baptism or that could be every single time that that it had, whatever it is happened that we promised, I'm gonna do better next time. These promises and commitments to being faithful that we would see our own promises of faithfulness to Jesus. And also to see in Peter's denial before the servant girl by the fire, our own denial of Jesus, not before powerful courts in these formal trial systems, but in our everyday lives, sitting by the fire pit, out on our way to work, in our homes throughout the week, that, that the greatest denials that happen for us are not like Jesus in the formal courts, but in the informal little moments of our lives. And to see in Mark's absence of a reason of why for Peter's denial, that we might begin to ask and fill in our own reasons to name why we deny Jesus, why we deny his lordship, why we deny him as our king, as the, the son of man, as God in the flesh who has come with power, seated at the right hand of God, the one who can forgive and guide us into true life. Why do we deny him? And why we de- do we deny vocalizing and pronouncing him for who he is? Is it because of comfort? And the discomfort that comes with claiming ourselves as belonging to Jesus? Is it for control and the fact that there's some area or all of our lives that we refuse to let Jesus speak into? Is it out of confusion in the midst of a a broken world and we're not entirely sure what to do and how to follow Jesus and how this all comes together? And so we just kind of set it off to the side and we just figure it out for ourselves. Or is it just from complacency? This spiritual apathy where we just continue to walk through our days on cruise control, asleep to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, the kingship of him in our lives. This mirror that he set before us with Peter and his promises to faithfulness, his denial and the everyday rhythms of his life and his, his absence of a reason why for us to read in our own all builds up to In Peter's three denials, our own repeated denials of Jesus and who we are as his disciples, because for a Christian, our identity and the identity of Jesus are in some way, this is what Ephesians post Mark's gospel is where we're going, is so interwoven within. That for some level for us to deny Jesus is for us to deny who we are in him. because to deny something is to declare that something is untrue. To deny Jesus either actively or passively through not saying it or through saying something differently or to outright denying it is is to say that Jesus is not who he is and to say that we as his disciples are not who we are. And this can happen like we see here with Peter in our words, often within our, in my own lives, it happens less often through my words and more often through our works as the Apostle Paul would write in his letter to Titus, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There is a denial that can come like Peter in our words or in our works. A denial through us either saying we we are not a Christian, we don't identify as a follower or by actively not telling people about Jesus or through our works what this may look like just to pull from Mark chapter seven and the teachings of Jesus on what he identifies as being these forms of denial of his lordship. He talks about things like murder, but going deeper than murder talks about those of us who harbor anger towards another, that we have murdered them within our heart. This sort of anger that, that leads to a sort of inward or even an outward violence, one that is the opposite of, of his lordship in the kingdom of love. Jesus talks about a way of denying him of adultery. Again, just like with murder, saying that there is also at the same time, both an externalization of that when it takes us to another, but also an internalization in lust, which is the opposite of dignity in both of these cases and impurity and a promise. Theft which is the opposite of generosity instead of giving to others where we take from others. Sexual immorality as opposed to purity, coveting as opposed to contentment, wickedness as opposed to the pursuit of justice, deceit as opposed to truth, sensuality as opposed to the kingdom of purity and envy as opposed to kindness and slander as opposed to encouragement and pride as opposed to humility, foolishness as opposed to wisdom. to see that that behind every single one of these things is not when Jesus gives his laws and and, and the commandments and what it means to be his follower. And these are are not Jesus, these are bad things. He's saying that there is a unique sort of kingdom that I am building. And for those who either by their words reject me or by their works walk and live in such a way that is counter to the kingdom that I am dedicated to building. These are the sort of things of what that looks like. And if you don't find yourself somewhere in this list, then you are not paying attention and you are not listening. To find harbored anger and bitterness within your own heart directed towards someone else. To find a way of viewing others, to viewing our own sexuality as something that is inward directed. To find so often that, that on the, the road towards a call, towards a kingdom of generosity, that, that, that we may even outright theft or hoarding which John the Baptist refers to, hoarding is stealing from the, from the poor, having more than you need. Foolishness and getting caught up in what the apostle Paul talks about as being conspiracies and foolish controversies as opposed to the way of wisdom. Pride and arrogance of determining the right way and that everybody that doesn't see eye to eye on the way that I want things is, is wrong and they need to be corrected. Impatience versus patience, I There's a hymn that goes with the story that we're reading today. It says, uh, Oh my soul, oh my Jesus, Judas sold you for 30. I have done it for less. Oh my savior, oh my soul, oh my savior. Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. As we stand here on Palm Sunday, and in some way join the crowd, identifying Jesus as our King. Today here in Mark 14, before we move, or 14, set before us is the question, who do you say Jesus is? Not in a formal answer, not in, in your posts online, not in your, how you, not in your, in your life. Not in the formal declarations, but in the very informal ways that you speak and live your life. Who is Jesus to you? For some of us, we are far con- more content with joining Peter in giving up following him closely and following him at a safe distance, which is, in some sense, to deny him, because if he is who you say he is, then he is worth following right into every aspect of our lives. See whether Christian or not, Mark, well, or not, Mark is setting before us as a, Peter as a mirror to see our own story, our own denial of the way of Jesus in our words, in our works that we are denying Jesus as King. And we are at the same time denying and rejecting ourselves as who we are made to be and who Jesus wants to shape us into. So, the whole point, I believe, of why Mark sets the denial of Peter here, not before, but right before we move into 15, is because he is giving us one more chance to see ourselves before we move into the cross and the resurrection. One more chance for us to join Peter in some way being broken down, where we refuse to give excuses for our sin, where we refuse to stop denying the problem and naming it of pretending that I've I've got it all together or sweeping our sin and shame under the rug, our guilt and fear and hiding it behind the furniture so that we can pretend that things are all put together. At some level, Mark wants us to join Peter in hearing the rooster crow and identifying and seeing the fact that we have denied Jesus. It's not a happy sermon, but I believe that Mark is convinced that as with addiction, so with any other entrapping sin within our lives, the first step is admitting that we have a problem. Because it is not until we get to that place, I believe where we join Peter brokenness and even in weeping, that we are truly ready to receive the cross and the resurrection for the gospel that it is. It is not until we name our hopeless state, I believe that we can truly join within the triumphal crowd singing, Hosanna, save us, we pray. That until we have named the depth of the darkness within our own hearts and within this world, the cross will always be a weird story to us and the resurrection a happy Sunday. But we're not really able to identify why until we taste the bitterness of the reality of us being as the apostle Paul put it dead in our trespasses until we taste the bitterness, we are incapable of tasting the sweetness of the empty tomb. It is not until we hear the rooster crow that our ears are ready to hear the gospel. And so what I'm inviting us into over this next week is a week of prayer and a week of repentance and confession even fasting as is common throughout church history, that as we make our way to Good Friday, we take time and we sit ourselves on the ground with Peter. And we name, we vulnerably name and identify our sin, our brokenness. We identify ourselves in the deep need that we have for someone to save us. And so my prayer is that today, even in this hard word that has been as hard for you over these past 39 minutes as for me over this past week, is that in effect, we might hear the rooster crow and look back over our lives up to this point, this week, this month, and that we might allow the weight of the denials, the weight of the brokenness, the weight of the failure to be the disciples or the humans that we desire to be, to let that sit on us. And and the reality is that there are some of you that you carry that all the time. And, And I just want you to hear there is hope coming for you and there is hope for you in the cross and empty tomb. But for many of us, myself included, we are far too prone to sweeping our shame and our guilt and our fear and our brokenness and our sin under the carpet. And we need a, a, a mark to give us this text before we move forward. And so for all of us, I'm inviting us into a week of repentance and confession. For those of you in discipleship groups to vulnerably name, to vulnerably name your denial of Jesus, to confess your sin so that we may be healed as, as James writes. Because I, I am so convinced within my own heart, and I know this is what Mark is doing. We have got to carry all of our, we've got to go through the house, we've got to do some spring cleaning and drag out all of the mess within our stories. And we got to carry that with us as we follow the story to the cross. Because it's precisely there that Jesus wants to receive that from us.